Amen. Well, the title of this sermon is The Sanctity of Human Life. Well, on January 22nd, 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to legalize abortion in all 50 states. On January 13, 1984, according to Life Matters, President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation designating January 22nd as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. Evangelical churches all throughout the United States use this day to celebrate God's goodness in the gift of life. It is a day to recall and honor many lives lost to abortion. It is a day that churches commit to the preservation of human life from the vulnerable fetus stage all the way through the vulnerable hospice stage. At Trinity, today we commemorate the sanctity of human life. So for those of you who are not familiar with the sanctity of human life, it basically means that because man and woman are created in God's image, life itself is sacred and should be treated as sacred. As a pastor, I have somewhat dreaded the coming of this day to preach on a topic that is a hot topic that is controversial. Don't worry about it, bro. You just speak the word. Thank you, Peter. People need to hear it. Amen. 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 Thank you. (laughs) So um, there are multiple reasons why abortions are committed. And as a pastor, I implore you, church, I implore you, church, to not have a selfish, prideful, righteous attitude towards abortion patients or those who have had an abortion or those who have had abortions. Instead, as Christians, we ought to have compassion on them. We ought to be praying for them. According to survey, some abortion patients gave these reasons. And I want to admit to you, I had to stop reading so many articles in preparation for this sermon because I realized that I had the pulpit responsibility that could incite righteous indignation. But nevertheless, I had to read a few of these articles just to educate myself so that in the hopes that I may educate you and inform you further. But here are some of the reasons why abortions were committed. Number one, they got pregnant and they weren't ready to become a mother. Not necessarily in that order. That was the first reason. Another reason is they got pregnant because of incest or rape or the parents or the partner's desire for them to have an abortion 
Another reason stated, given, was for health reasons. The concern for the health of the mother or the concern for the health of the fetus. Another reason was purely just based out of economic reasons. That's just to name a few. And I'd be the first one to admit that I am nowhere close to being competent in helping folks navigate through the complexities and difficulties in the topic of abortion. But I will be the first one to proclaim that our God, who is the giver of life, has the ability through his word to help us navigate through the difficulties and complexities of abortion. Would you pray with me? Father, we come upon your word in Exodus 1 that addresses the sanctity of human life. And we pray that your word would would go forth boldly and accomplish its intended redemptive effect. That it would encourage your church to stand in our faith in, in the midst of opposition in this new current administration in the topic of abortion. We pray that our love for you shines brighter than our pride towards those who've had abortion. Help us to develop a heart of compassion for those who are hurting and grieving and groaning and crying this morning. Father, address us by your word so that we may be built up in your faith that you have given us through Christ Jesus. Father, I pray through your word that you would comfort those who are hurting, those who don't know you. I pray that the tragedies of abortions, that you would redeem it in a redemptive way so that they would just come to an end of themselves and look for you for peace and mercy. And may the forgiveness of Christ Jesus through the message of the gospel be the power of salvation to those who don't know you. Father, be with us now. Grant us grace to behold your word that we may bring glory and honor to you and that the name of Jesus would be lifted up above all other names. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever entered into a conversation not knowing where the conversation would lead to? I'm sure most of us have. Well, one spring, my family and I went on a vacation and we found ourselves seated around a table with a long time family friend and our aunt. He is a retired, high ranking um, army person. In fact, I think he's a lieutenant colonel. And so therefore, he acts like a lieutenant colonel. (laughs) The table conversation started cordially um, with all of my family's present. Melinda was there, all three of our boys. And I said, my aunt. Then the conversation veered towards politics, which then naturally leads to religion. It started out with socialism and then to abortion. And I just want to just say, I wasn't the one driving the topics of the conversation. 
He simply stated that abortion should be legal based on the Supreme Court's definition of when life begins. And he simply stated, life begins after birth. And as a pastor, I couldn't leave his thoughts on abortion unchallenged. I appealed to him in the most humble way that life begins upon conception, to which a debate ensued. And the next thing I knew, he had gotten frustrated. He had to get up and get a drink of milk. He had offered me cookies, to which I noticed that my three sons and my wife and my aunt had quietly vacated, I don't even know when. (laughs) I love this man, and I have been, in fact, praying for his salvation prior to this conversation. Though the conversation was difficult, I was able to share the gospel with him through this conversation. So, when does life begin? Well, according to the medical world, Dr. Jaime Gordon of Mayo Clinic says this, by all criteria of modern molecular biology, life is present from the moment of conception. Dr. Micheline Matthews Roth of Harvard University Medical School says it is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. Dr. Kevin DeYoung, an American author, pastor, theologian, wrote a blog titled Life is Precious. Every human life is precious, he says. A person's a person, no matter how small. He writes, at 18 days, the baby's heart begins to beat. At 21 days, it pumps its own blood with its own blood type through its own circulatory system. At 28 days, about a month, its eyes, ears, and respiratory system begin to form. At 42 days, brain waves can be recorded and reflexes are present. At seven weeks, you might see an image of your baby sucking its thumb. At eight weeks, all body systems are present, according to science. At nine weeks, before most women show or maybe even know that they are pregnant, the baby can squint swallow, move its tongue, and make a fist. At 11 weeks, the baby has fingernails and makes spontaneous breathing movements. At 15 weeks, the baby has adults' taste buds. At 16 weeks, genital, genital organs are clearly differentiated, and the baby can grasp with its hands. It can swim, it can kick, it can turn and do somersaults, not even detectable by the mother. At 17 weeks, the baby can dream. At 18 weeks, the vocal cords work, and the baby can cry. At 20 weeks, 
the time of the ultrasound. The baby has hair on its head. It weighs about a pound. It's about 12 inches long. And the child is known scientifically that it can recognize the mother's voice. At 24 weeks, well more than half of all babies in this country can survive premature birth. And the, the, the potential, the probability of the baby surviving after those weeks is exponential. Given the medical care that we have available here in the United States. Church, life is precious. Just to put the lives lost to abortions in perspective, I want to share this article with you. Dr. Michael Brown, who is an apologist, wrote an article titled, COVID has killed hundreds of thousands. Abortion has killed tens of millions. That baby right there, made it past abortion. Praise God. He writes this. According to the respected Worldometer website, COVID-19 deaths in 2020, just last year alone, reached 1.8 million, a truly tragic and devastating number. There's no denying that we have experienced a real pandemic and many of us have lost friends and loved ones to this virus in the last 12 months. Yet, for every person who died of COVID or whose death was hastened by COVID, almost 25 died by abortion. This is as staggering and horrifying. These babies died in the womb by human choice. Professor Thomas Williams summarizes these year-end statistics, also looking at major causes of death. He says abortion was once again the number one cause of death globally in 2020 with a record 42.7 million unborn babies killed in the womb according to the data provided by World Meter. Forty two point seven million. As of December thirty first, two thousand twenty, exactly a month ago, there were forty two point seven million abortions performed in the course of the year. World O Meter revealed this. While eight point two million people died from cancer, five million from smoking, and one point seven million of HIV and AIDS. Overall, Williams writes, globally, there were more deaths from abortion in 2020 than deaths from cancer, malaria, HIV, AIDS, smoking, alcohol, traffic accidents combined. Do you know what that means, church? It means that last year, 42.7 million babies did not have the opportunity to enjoy the gift of fellowship. 42.7 million babies didn't have the opportunity to play a youth soccer game. 
42.7 babies did not get the opportunity to listen to cool music and watch cool movies. 42.7 million babies didn't get to share the love of Jesus with others. Church, this is why we must stand up for innocent lives in the sanctity of human life day. The killing of babies goes all the way back to Old Testament times. Although Exodus 1 doesn't really address abortion as we know it, it does address the sanctity of human life and a crude form of child birth control. Here's the main burden of the sermon. God created human life in his own image. Therefore, we ought to treat every human life as sacred. And I believe that is exactly what the two Hebrew midwives were doing in the book of Exodus in chapter one. They certainly treated each life as sacred. This chapter can be neatly divided into two sections. First, the blessings of fruitfulness, and second, the opposition of fruitfulness. Verses one through seven actually connects the narrative of Exodus to the narrative of Genesis. More specifically, verses one through seven connects to the covenant that God made with Abraham and then later declared again to Jacob in Genesis 35, verse 11, which says, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. And church, that is indeed what Israel was doing in Egypt. Verse seven tells us that they were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. Does verse seven also sound familiar to you? That's because it parallels God's commands to humanity at creation in Genesis chapter one, verses 27 through 28. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves, to, moves on the earth. God's command to humanity at creation came to fruition in Exodus 1. When the sons of Joseph, when the sons of Israel came to Egypt, it says that in a text that there were a total of 70 persons. Well, if you look further in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, it says that about 600,000 men of fighting age left Egypt. Now, if you were to count older men, women, children, and the infirmed, most Bible commentators would estimate that there are over 2.5 million Israelites in the land of Egypt. 
God was indeed blessing his people by multiplying them and causing them to increase greatly and made them exceedingly strong. God blessed his people despite the fall in the garden. Why did God bless his people? Because he had a purpose. You see, church, it is through Abraham, it is through Isaac and Jacob that God set forth in motion the process that will bring completion to his redemptive purposes in the world. It is through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants that God planned to reverse all that has gone wrong in our world since the fall in the Garden of Eden. God said to Jacob in Genesis 35, verse 11, that king shall come out of your own body. Well, out of all the kings that came out of Jacob's body, there was only one divine king, and his name is King Jesus. And he is the one who has the power to restore, redeem, and reverse all that has gone wrong since the fall in the garden. Listen, if you are an unbeliever, whether you are here or whether you are live streaming, thank you for joining us. Then I want you to know that the Son of God, Jesus, came to us to seek and to save the lost. And one day, he will restore, redeem, and renew all things for us. And I just want to encourage you to get to know more of this King Jesus. Next, we go from blessings of fruitfulness to the opposition of fruitfulness. That's verses 8 through 22. Look with me at verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We're told that this king, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt didn't know Joseph. He didn't know, and I don't know how, but he... Okay, uh, I won't share with you the, some of the background in this, but he didn't know that King, that Joseph did a lot of good works in the land of Egypt. But this king feared the increasing people of God. Why? Was he fearing this people that was exponentially multiplying? Well, it says that in our text that if war broke out, the Israelites would join the enemies of Egypt and fight against them, and then they would escape from the land. And so what does any shrewd king do? Well, he devises a plan to stop them from multiplying further. And so this wise king devised three methods to stop the people of God from multiplying. First, he would work them to death. He set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They were, they were worked hard as slaves by building two store cities. One was Pithim and the other one was Ramses. 
The thought behind this ingenious method was, let's work them to death every day so that every night they're too tired to multiply. You get it? Did this plan work? Oh, absolutely not. The more they were oppressed, the more they increased and multiplied and spread abroad. The Egyptians became weary of the Israelites, and it says in the original language that they literally became sickened with dread of them. Second, the the king commanded the Hebrew midwives Shipra and Pua to kill all the baby boys right as soon as they are born. We see this in verses 15 through 16. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded them to do, but let the baby boys live. Now, here's an observation. For the author of Exodus to say that the midwives feared God twice, once in verse 17 and another time in verse 21, he was actually commending these two midwives. The most powerful person in the land, the king, Pharaoh, didn't even get named Clearly, the divine author of Exodus is commending these two women because of their fear of God and their faith in God. In fact, the book of Exodus, there is a central theme of God calling his people to not fear any ruler or any circumstances or any situation, but to fear God himself. Shipra and Pua were living out their faith in God in the midst of Pharaoh's opposition. So the Egyptian king introduced even more radical strategy, a crude form of birth control. Instead of working them to death, well, let's just kill all the baby boys. Why? Because it was to protect his kingdom. It was to protect his rule. To protect his kingdom and to protect his rule, all the Hebrew baby boys were sentenced to death. But Shipra and Pua courageously refused to follow Pharaoh's evil plan. These two ladies are heroes in my book, and they are certainly heroes in the book of Exodus chapter 1. If, if Pharaoh's plan would have succeeded, then he would have completely exterminated all of the baby boys in the land, and all of the girls would have eventually married Egyptians, and later the Israelite people would have been absorbed in the Egyptian race. Shipra's and Pua's disobedience to Pharaoh marks the first instance in Holy Scripture of what we call today as civil disobedience. What is civil disobedience? 
It is simply the refusing to obey an evil law by man because of a higher good. This should remind us of other characters in the Old Testament, right? Like Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego that we see in the book of Daniel in chapters 1, 3, and 6. Listen, church, when the laws of God contradict the laws of men, then we must obey God rather than man. Peter and the apostles said this in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. And so we must as well as the church. While campaigning, candidate President Joe Biden made it clear that if he got elected, that he would move to see Roe v. Wade codified through legislation into federal law. What, what does that mean? I actually had to really research that. And what is he actually saying there? And basically, he said that himself that he will make abortion legal the law of the land. He said that if he got elected, he would fight against state-level abortion restrictions and that he would promote taxpayer funding of abortions. Do you get what's going on here in his agenda if you're a taxpayer? Church, this is why we must stand against such thing. We must reject legalizing abortion. We must obey God's law rather than man's law. When Pharaoh questioned the midwives why they allowed the the baby boys to live, they said that the Hebrew women were more vigorous than the Egyptian women. They they gave birth to to, to these boys before we can get there, they said. And because the Hebrew midwives feared God and obeyed him, God dwelt well with them. There are two things here about fear. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, feared the increasing people of Israel. The two Hebrew midwives feared, but, he, but they feared God. Now, I want to be clear about this verse. It seems like at first glance, at the surface level, that God blessed them because they appear to be telling half-truths. But that is not correct. That's not a correct interpretation. The point is God blessed these two Hebrew midwives because they feared God and they lived out their faith in God. The irony of the whole thing is that God blessed these two Hebrew midwives with children. The very thing that Pharaoh was seeking to exterminate. We can see clearly here God's sovereignty at work. In the midst of opposition, he is going against the grain. Our God is enthroned. And he is ruling and reigning, and he is seeking to bring restoration into this fallen and darkened world. Mm -hmm. Psalm 127, verse 3, 
says, behold, children, our heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. God rewarded these two Hebrew midwives with children. Third, Pharaoh implemented selective annihilation. Pharaoh commanded all of his people to cast all of the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile. This Egyptian king who feared and opposed the growth of of the Israelite people and their population was opposing the purposes of God's redemptive plan. And of course, our God remains sovereign over this human king. If you read chapter two, he made a way for Moses to be preserved in an extraordinary way. Only God can orchestrate this. He allowed for baby Moses to be found and to be raised where? In Pharaoh's own household. It's amazing. Moses, which means draw out, was the one whom God eventually used to deliver the people of God, the Israelites, from the slavery in Egypt. And you know what, church? Moses prefigures King Jesus. Moses points forward to King Jesus who delivered his people, who delivered us from, ultimate, from the ultimate slavery of sin that leads to death. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head. Now, with the staggering number of abortions that are performed, I am sure the potential is quite high for those of you who might be here who or maybe you're live streaming that you might have experienced an abortion. Or perhaps you were directly or indirectly involved in abortion. Perhaps you are listening. You're listening online or you're listening live. And in the past, you had an abortion or you encourage your partner to get an abortion, or you paid for an abortion, or you're a grandparent who supported your granddaughter's abortion. Now you live with this guilt and grief that you cannot bear on your own. And maybe you're an unbeliever, And if you are, the wages of sin is death. Maybe you are here and you're listening and you are crying inwardly, quietly. You are grieving quietly. You are groaning quietly. I want you to know that God hears your cry. I want you to know that as you grieve quietly and groan quietly, God knows your pain and your hurt. 
God hears you crying. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. In chapter 2, that's the, the, that's the narrative of how Moses was born, but verses 23 through 25 circles back to our text this morning in chapter 1. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Listen, God hears you crying. God hears your inward groaning and grieving. And God knows your pain. God was faithful to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through them came the savior of the world. And so if you're here, or if you're listening, if you're live streaming, and you're hurting, and you're crying, and you're grieving, and you're groaning, there is hope and peace for you that can only come from Jesus Christ. That is why he came to this earth to bear the sin that you and I have committed, past, present, and future, and he paid for all of them on the cross so that you may be forgiven, so that you may be consoled, so that you may be comforted. And to receive this comfort, this consolation, this peace, all you have to do is surrender your life to Jesus, confess your sin, and accept him as your Lord and Savior, and acknowledge your need of a Savior, and all of the peace All of the comfort and consolation is yours immediately. Because he died for your sin, our sin, you can have a new identity. You are forgiven. You are innocent. God looks at you with Christ, through Christ's righteousness, as if the abortion never happened. All is forgiven. Why? Because Jesus died for that sin. If you are a believer, then be reminded of this. Because God preserved all the baby boys in Exodus 1. A king did come from Jacob's body and his name is King Jesus. This king laid down his life for you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. So what can we do to participate in the battle to preserve the sanctity of human life? Number one, we can pray. Church. Pray that the works of the devil will be destroyed, 1 John 3, 8. Pray that the devil himself, who has the power 
of death can be destroyed completely. Hebrews 2.14. What else can we do to stand up in our faith in Christ Jesus? Donate. Donate to pro-life organizations like Pregnancy Resources in Melbourne. Donations are used to provide free clinical services such as pregnancy tests and ultrasounds. And do you know how they use ultrasound machines for unplanned pregnancies for those who are planning to have an abortion? The ultrasound reveals that there is indeed life in their womb, and oftentimes they change their minds. They also provide free education and mentoring, even counsel post-abortion. They not only provide free medical services, but they also share the gospel with these clients with unplanned pregnancies who are pretty much hopeless and depressed And praise God, some of them come to saving faith. What else can we do? We can give. We can give of our finances. You can give to the mission fund that we receive each year. And each year, we give a financial gift to to pregnancy resources in Melbourne. What else can we do? We can support. We can support organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom Organization. This is an organization that is comprised of Christian leaders. Most of them are lawyers who fight for religious freedom at the Supreme Court level. They fight for the freedom of religion. They fight for freedom of speech. They fight for family and marriage. Church, we join in the fight to preserve human sanctity because every person is created in the image of God. Would you stand with me? Father, we praise you this morning because no matter what is taking place in this fallen world, you are in control. And Father, as we live in the midst of such tragedies as abortions, we know that you are at work restoring and redeeming. Though we have this present administration seated in both houses, we know that you're in control. So Father, as a church, we would just cry out to you for strengthening that only comes from the Lord to help us stand firm in our faith and preserve the human life sanctity the sanctity of human life. Father, we thank you that you are a God who can redeem tragedies like the tragedy of abortions. And we do pray that for those who experience abortion, that you would use that pain to redeem them from being lost and that they would come to saving faith at the moment of their deepest desperation. And Father, as a church, help us to have a compassionate heart for those who have lost babies due to abortion. Help us to pray for them and help us to support them and to encourage them with the good news of Jesus. Father, be glorified as we sing to you out of praise for who you are, the giver of life, the sustainer of life, 
be praised. Lord Jesus, church, let's sing.